Amen. Before we get into this morning's message, can I just encourage you about that time of uh, prayer and fasting? Uh, just how effective it is. You know, James says you do not have because you do not ask. And really, that's what prayer is. It, it's not telling what God what to do. It's asking God to give to us all that's on his heart. And I think we told you the story a few months ago now of uh, the church in Langley where we were for three years nearly. And uh, they didn't have a pastor. We weren't the permanent fixture. And so we asked the Lord that he would send that pastoral couple to us. And then COVID hit. And who's going anywhere in, in COVID? Just about the whole world was, was grounded. And yet, that first, we started praying that in May 2021, I believe it was. And then that, no, it was 2020, and then, 21, yes, that's right. And then that Christmas, this guy came literally knocking at our door. It was an Indian man. His daughters were enrolled in Trinity Western University, which was just 10 minutes up the road. And he'd come to see them established. He knew somebody in our church and he came to our door. We had a conversation. Turns out he lives in Hong Kong, but God had spoken to him about getting ready for a move. I said, when did, when did God speak to you about that? And it was exactly the time we started praying for our pastor. We prayed that God would loosen his roots wherever he was in the world and bring him to us. And he said, it was in May, that was exactly the time that we'd been praying. And then God had literally brought him to us, right to the door, in fact. The other thing we started to pray about in that church was that God would bring people in from the north and the south and the east and the west. And you know, when we pray, we might have something small in mind. I was thinking, you know, east, well, I was thinking, we were in beast, I was thinking Alberta, perhaps, or, or, or maybe Saskatchewan. But when God thinks east, he's thinking Africa, he's thinking Israel, he's thinking the Far East. And when we visited there just two weeks ago, from a church that was predominantly white Anglo-Saxon, there were people sitting there from 22 different nations on the face of the earth. It was absolutely marvelous. There were people obviously from Canada, but from South Africa, from New Zealand, from Ecuador, from India, from Nepal, from Brazil. There was a lady there from Iran, from China, from Malaysia. Because when we ask, we receive. You have not because you ask not. So I want to really encourage you in this time of prayer to ask the Lord for the very best. To ask the Lord to bring his choice and plant them right here so that you can have a shepherd and he can have the glory. Anyway, that's not what I'm preaching on this morning. 
In, in his book, The Purpose Driven Church, um, the, the author Rick Warren tells a story about Professor Hugh Moorhead of the Northeastern Illinois University. In 1995, he wrote a book entitled The Meaning of Life. And for his research, he sent letters out to 215, 250 professors in other universities, some of the finest minds in the United States. And in his letter, he asked them the same question. What do you think the meaning of life is? Well, he got a variety of responses back, but the one that stood out to him and the one that Rick Warren reported on was one of these professors who wrote back and said, I have absolutely no clue. If you find the answer, will you tell me? Years before, Mark Twain, the author of Huckleberry Finn and giver of characters like Tom Sawyer, once wrote this, there are two important days in a person's life. The day they are born and the day they know why. And this morning, we are going to try and answer both those questions. Why we are here on earth and what is the meaning of life. So let's turn together, shall we, to Mark chapter 12. Just to give you some context for this. This is the last week of Jesus' life on the earth. And the Jews are asking him all sorts of difficult questions. Theologians call these accounts conflict stories because his enemies are trying to trap and trick him. First, they bring up questions about paying taxes, always a controversial subject. And then about marriage in the resurrection. For them, that was a very controversial subject. And finally, a scribe comes forward and he asks Jesus this question. Which is the greatest commandment? Now, this man is a Pharisee. And Pharisees just loved rules and regulations. They were very command-oriented. In fact, Moses gave Israel ten commandments, but these guys extended that to over 600. 248 were positives, and 365 were negatives. Imagine that. Dreaming up a different thing you mustn't do on every day of the year. How many of us would like to belong to a church like that? So let's pick up the conversation at verse 28. It's also going to be on the screen behind me. And by the way, if you're listening online, welcome here. Uh, we are sorry you can't be with us, but we pray that God meets you and blesses you anyway. Which commandment is the most important of all, asks this scribe. And Jesus answered, the most important is... Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no commandment greater than these. The meaning of life and the primary reason why each of us listening to this message this morning are here on the earth is to receive God's love and then to love him back. We are here to, let's say it together, receive God's love and then to love him back. Jesus said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and with all your strength. He's quoting Deuteronomy chapter 6. That, by the way, is a command that comes ten times throughout the Bible. It was the very first Bible verse a Jewish boy memorized and prayed with his parents. Jewish men placed that on little pieces of parchment in their phylacteries, those boxes they wore on their forehead and wrists when they were praying. And Jewish women used to put them in those mezuzahs, those, those little boxes that they fastened to the outside of their door frame. It was very important. And this, by the way, is the number one core commitment for this church, for Landmark Christian Fellowship. So let's unpack it this morning and let's try and find out some of the practical ways in which we can put this into operation. The title of my message is Loving God, Loving Others. So let's take this text to pieces, shall we? Jesus said, You will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. Let's stop there. Loving God with all our heart and all our soul. On July the 15th, 1815, the Napoleonic Wars in Europe ended when the French emperor surrendered to Captain Frederick Maitland on the HMS Bellerophon. Knowing Maitland's reputation for gallantry, Napoleon held out his hand, but the Briton refused to shake it. Will you not shake the hand of a defeated foe and be a friend? Napoleon asked. Yes, I'll gladly do so, came the reply. But first your sword, then your hand. First your sword, then your hand. That's how we begin to express loving God with all our hearts. We don't express it primarily in sentiment, but we express it in surrender. It means giving up our desires. It means resigning our plans. It means laying down our ambitions. Like Jesus in Gethsemane, it's saying, not my will, but yours be done every day of our lives. Loving God doesn't just mean receiving Jesus as Savior. It means receiving Jesus as Lord. Isn't that interesting? That the 21st century church make a big deal about receiving Jesus as Savior. And it is a big deal. But the 1st century church 
made a big deal about receiving him as Lord. Paul wrote, what we present is, not our, is, is Jesus Christ as Lord and ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. The issue, the gospel issue was receiving him as Lord. And that's where this commandment begins. Probably this was the very scripture that David had in mind when he penned Psalm 68. And in verse 11 he prays this, Teach me your way, O Lord, that I might walk in your truth. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. An undivided heart. Loving the Lord with all our heart and all our soul. This means having a single focus. This means being utterly committed. This means living every day only for the will and for the glory of God. In Eugene Peterson's words, it's to have a long obedience in the same direction. King Saul was filled with the Spirit, prophesied, stood head and shoulders above any other man. He won some amazing battlefield victories. He was a great warrior and he might have been a great king. But Saul's heart was divided. He loved God, but he also loved himself. He needed the praises of men and he was addicted to advancing his own reputation. And tragically, he ended up committing suicide on Mount Gilboa. He loved God, but not with all his heart. Just with some of it. Samson was the strongest man Israel had ever seen. He could tear the gates off a city and run up a hill with them, held high over his head. He could kill a lion with his bare hands. He could slay hundreds of enemy soldiers with only the jawbone of a donkey as a weapon. But Samson had a divided heart. He did love God, but he also loved foreign women. Today we'd say he had a sexual addiction. And Samson ended up bald, blind, bound, and baited. Judas. Judas was one of the twelve. He heard Jesus preach. He went on mission. He worked miracles. He preached himself. He healed the sick. He cast out demons. He loved Jesus. But not with all his heart. And all his soul. Because... He loved money too. The scripture tells us he'd help himself to their common purse. And he ended up betraying the Lord for a mere 30 pieces of silver. The price of a crippled slave. A few paltry bucks we'd say today. It was actually worth about $250 in today's money. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. 
Not with a divided heart. Not with a heart that's after other things. When Jesus taught the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Blessed are the pure in heart. That word pure means unalloyed, unmixed. He could have said, Blessed are those who love the Lord their God with all their heart and with all their soul. Now what about us? How do we measure up to this commandment? It might be a priority in our church, but is it a reality in our lives? Do we love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul, or are there divisions there? Is our love total or partial? Loving God with all our heart and all our soul, by the way, has very little to do with warm, fuzzy feelings and emotional highs. It's about walking right and doing right because we know it pleases God. We might love God. That's why we're here this morning. That's why you've tuned in online. But do we went bend the rules when it means making a quick buck? Do we tell a lie or exaggerate something to make ourselves look good? Have we surrendered our Lord? Do we love the Lord with all our heart and all our soul? Jesus goes on. He says you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul. And then he says, with all your mind. In our second point now, let's look at loving God with all our mind. Now when Paul was writing to the Corinthians, he, he came to that part where he talked about spiritual warfare. And he says, the weapons of our warfare have divine power to destroy strongholds. Now what strongholds? Where are they? Well, they're actually in our mind. Because he goes on to say, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised against the knowledge of God. And we take every thought captive to obey Christ. So the strongholds that, that, that can be demonic strongholds, I mean, they might be in, in cities and in geographical locations, but especially they can be in our mind. If you think about it, the battle in the Bible, the biggest battle is the battle for people's minds. So when the serpent came into the Garden of Eden and spoke to Eve, he attacked her mind. And he planted seeds of doubt there about what God had said and why he'd said it. He deceived her and convinced her to sin. It started in her mind. When Jesus rebuked Peter about resisting his going to the cross, he said, you are not setting your mind on the things of God. You're not loving God with all your mind, Peter, if you're thinking like that. Paul instructed the Colossians, set your mind on things above. He told the Romans, 
Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed. How? Through the renewing of your mind. And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. How do we go about that? Let me give you three little practical ways in which we can love the Lord with all our mind. First of all, by guarding what goes into it. Jesus said that the eye is the lamp of the body. And what we allow it to look at can fill us with either light or darkness. It's not loving the Lord our God with all our mind if we fill it with images of pornography or extreme violence or listening to words of gossip or allowing disappointments and hurts to cultivate criticism and cynicism and hurtful thoughts or hateful thoughts. One of the most beautiful birds in the world is the flamingo. Flamingo is actually a Spanish word that means flame-colored. And yet, when this bird is, is born and, and when it's a juvenile, or very young, it's actually a dull gray in color. That's its, its natural pigmentation. But the truth is that these birds eat brine shrimp, which are tiny little forms of life that contain beta-carotene, a red-orange pigment. And that chemical turns their whole feathers bright shades of pink and red. You could say, and this is a great spiritual principle, flamingos become what they consume. And that's true of you and me too. We become what we consume. Why don't we say that together? We become what we consume. This came across with rather amusing clarity one time. One of our grandchildren, when he was a toddler, absolutely loved carrots. And he would eat carrots just all the time. You know, he'd eat them raw, he'd eat them mashed, he'd eat them cooked. He just loved carrots until one morning he woke up and his nose had turned bright orange. It was the funniest thing. It, it was short-lived. But the truth was, he became what he consumed. And that's true of us. What we let into our mind can actually shape who we are. That's why it says, love the Lord your God with all your mind. Be careful what you let in there. The second way we can do it is to be careful what we allow to grow there. Hurts or injustices can be very painful things. And it's easy to hold on to them, allowing unforgiveness to lodge in our minds where it stokes anger against those who have wronged us. But if we are to love the Lord our God with all our mind, we cannot be one of those people that keep playing the movie 
of our hurt over and over and over again. Nursing it. Because it becomes our identity. And neither should we imagine hurting the person that's hurt us or getting even with them. Or giving them a piece of our mind that they deserve to hear and rehearsing that speech over and over again. That's cursing that hurt and all it's doing is reinforcing it. A real practical way we can love the Lord our God with all our mind is to forgive those who have wronged us and not allow those seeds to turn us cynical, angry or bitter. And then look for ways to bless those who've done us wrong. A Holocaust survivor kept saying to her family and friends, I forgive Adolf Hitler for what he did to me. Now not understanding why she kept on saying this, one day they confronted her and asked her to explain herself. These were her words. Soon I'll move to America and start a new life, she said. And I don't want to take Adolf Hitler with me in my heart. Or in my mind. She understood that the only way to get free of hurt was to forgive. And she was showing us one way in which we can love God with all our mind, by not harboring those bitter thoughts to take root there. Here's a third way in which we can love the Lord with all our mind. By the way, we can all do this because forgiveness isn't an emotion, it's a decision. It's not something we feel, it's something we just do. And you'd be surprised. Once we do it, we begin to feel it. Well, here's another practical way. Recall what God has done for us and let it fuel thanksgiving. A little bit like Carl and Led in this morning, saying, let's make a response now and tell him why he's worthy. Well, Let's change that and say, why don't we make a habit of remembering in the mind what God has done and then giving him thanks for it. I'm absolutely staggered how bad we are. And I include me in that, in this. So, for example, um, some years ago, we were in a prayer summit and the leader said, okay, in our small groups here, here's what we're going to do. We're going to think of three things we can thank God for and use that as the basis of our praying. Do you know what? Some of us had a hard time. Not because God hadn't done anything, but because our mind wasn't trained in loving him by remembering and giving thanks. I think it was Charles Dickens who said, the North Americans have it all wrong. Charles Dickens, by the way, didn't like the Americans. He said, the North Americans have it all wrong, devoting a day to thanksgiving. 
Instead, we should devote one day to grumbling and the other 364 to giving thanks. I think he had a point. I think Jesus would agree with him because he said, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul, no divisions, and with all your mind. But he said something else. He said, you'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. And then he added another thing, and with all your strength. What did he mean by that? This is our third point. Loving God with all our strength. Well, simply put, I think it means working for God. Spending our lives in ways that serve him. And bring him glory. I think this is what John Piper was calling a whole generation to 23 years ago at a passion conference in Memphis, Tennessee. It was May 2000. And he preached what is now a famous sermon. Quoting from the Reader's Digest, he talked about a couple who took early retirement in their 50s. They moved to Punta Gorda in California. They bought a 30-foot trawler and they spent all their life playing softball and visiting different beaches to collect shells. To collect seashells. John Piper said, this is a tragedy when that mindset gets in the church. When the mindset of my comfort gets in God's people. When God's people hang up the do not disturb sign on the doorknob of their lives. And want to simply live for themselves. One of my heroes in church history is George Whitfield, And he's a, he's a great example of somebody who did not live like that, who loved the Lord with all his strength. He was a, a revivalist preacher in the 1700s. His biographer tells us he rode thousands of miles on horseback, braving, by the way, routes that were lined with highwaymen and footpads. He preached 18,000 sermons in his lifetime. He crossed the Atlantic 13 times. Now this was a time when it took six weeks to go one way. And the crossing was both dangerous and extremely uncomfortable. Friends told him to take it easy. But he said, better wear out than rust out. On the last day of his life, he rode 62 miles, 31 in each direction, from Newburyport to Boston and back again. Exhausted, he came to his lodgings. He took a light supper, and then he made his way upstairs. But he found that some of the villagers were crowding round the front door and in the hall and were begging him to preach to them. How long times have changed. And so, although he was so tired, he stood on the stairs and held his candle and ministered to the crowd until the candle burnt out in, his, in its sconce and then he went to bed. That night, he had an asthma attack 
and passed into the presence of the Lord Jesus. But the fact was that he loved the Lord with all his strength. How about an example from 2023? And you know them, Doug and Jan Taylor. They're in their 80s. And in a couple of days, they're going to leave for their 23rd year serving the Lord and his people in Mexico. They could take it easy. They could stay at home. They could go on cruises. They could chill at the cottage. They could spend time with their children and grandchildren. But instead of that, they're flying across the continent to preach in churches and mentor pastors and counsel married couples and teach young YWAMers, both in Mexico and this year in Spain. That's loving the Lord with all your strength. They could use their strength in other directions, but they are choosing to love the Lord with all their strength. Because they are gripped with the vision of filling the earth with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord. They are gripped with the vision of the Lamb of God having the reward of his sufferings as the Moravians used to cry. And so it's easy to love him with every fiber of their being. How strongly do we love him? Strongly enough to join the worship team or teach children in Sunday school or host a small group or come out to pray when the television's call, calling our name because there's a game on or to get up on a Sunday to worship with God's people instead of taking a lie-in. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. These words of Jesus cut across every culture. They challenge every apathy. They confront every entitled mindset. And they call up every Christian to get serious about God. This is where it starts. This is the first commandment. And then he said, and the second is like unto it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. As we conclude, let me think about that for a few minutes. This is point four, loving others. Loving the Lord our God with all our hearts and soul. Loving the Lord our God with all our mind. Loving the Lord our God with all our strength and now loving others. On one occasion, General Booth, the 19th century leader, founder and leader of the Salvation Army, was invited to address a packed hall in London on the subject, The Secret of My Success. Unfortunately, a last-minute crisis prevented Booth from attending in person, but he promised to send an answer in written form. And so a telegram came, and the master of ceremonies brought it onto the stage and 
quite ceremoniously undid it. To his surprise, written on it were just two words. Remember, what is the secret of my success? Two words. Others first. You know, one of the most dangerous journeys we can make is from the womb to the world. The most important journey we can make is from sinner to saint. But the most significant journey we make is from me to we. It's from being self-centered to others-oriented. And if we love the Lord our God with all our heart and all our soul and all our mind and all our strength, God will pour into us so much love in return that we won't help but be able to love our neighbors. Notice Jesus didn't say, love those you get on with. He didn't say, love those who like you or love those who agree with you. He said, love your neighbor. That means everybody you meet. The LGBTQ community. Trans people. The immoral. Addicts. Hypocrites. The obnoxious. Those who despise us. Those who betray us. Those who use us. Those who abuse us. Those who wrong us. We might think, that's impossible. I can't do that. But if we let the love of God fill us, we will. Listen to this little poem that Edward Markham wrote. He drew a circle that shut me out. Heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the wit to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Loving others means whoever they are, drawing a circle that takes them in. It's what Jesus did with the woman at the well. Everybody else would shut her out. He drew a circle that took her in. That's why he ate with prostitutes, shunned by all, but his circle included them tax collectors turncoats collaborators silenced by their community cancelled but he drew a circle that took them in this is one of the most challenging things we are commanded to do to take in to draw a circle big enough to take in people who have hurt us People who have betrayed us. People who have said nasty things about us. But let me finish with a story of how powerful that can be. During the Turkish-Armenian War of 1920, a young Armenian nurse and her brother were attacked by Tur Turkish soldiers in a lane. She managed to escape, but he was brutally killed right before her eyes. 
Later on, she was on duty in the hospital and recognized one of her patients as the very soldier who'd murdered her brother. Now, her first reaction was to get revenge. He was very ill. He was hovering between life and death. The slightest neglect, and he would die. And nobody would know. His life was absolutely now in her hands. But instead of revenge, she decided for Christ's sake to love him. She drew a circle that took him in. She fought for his life. She nursed him round the clock. And she won. Only because her roots reached down deep into God's marvelous love. And there she received grace to be able to do what in herself she couldn't. Later, while this soldier was convalescing, she told him who she was. The Turk looked at her in astonishment and said, why didn't you let me die? You had me in your power. I couldn't, she answered. I just couldn't. I'm a Christian. My master forgave his enemies. And I must do the same. And he commanded me to love my neighbor. And I did. Well, said the Turk, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want to be one too. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And your neighbor, you'll love him or her as yourself. Or maybe there are people here or perhaps online who have never really begun this journey of loving the Lord. And this morning, I want to invite us to receive Jesus Christ as not just our Savior, but our Lord. I'm going to put up a simple prayer. And I want us to, why don't we stand? Maybe the worship team can come. And I want us to pray this prayer together. Let's put it up there. Why don't we say this prayer together, shall we? Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying on the cross for my sin. Thank you for paying the penalty that I might be forgiven. Lord Jesus, come into my life. Wash me, cleanse me, forgive me, reconcile me to God, and help me to love him with all my heart, all my soul, all my mind, and all my strength. Today I own you, Jesus Christ, as my Savior, my Lord, and the treasure of my life. Now, Father, I want to ask that everyone who's prayed that for the first time, that they would know you and that they would love you 
with every fiber of their being, just as you loved us with every fiber of your being. And we pray your rich blessing now. In Jesus' name, amen.